just a note. Um, I have been sick since Wednesday, um, and I'm at home recovering. I'm doing all right, but it's like tail end. Um, so I might need to take some extra breaths and talk a little slower on this episode. Today on the podcast, I'm going to be discussing Evelyn Nesbitt and the Trial of the Century, a sordid tale of sex, jealousy, and murder among Manhattan's elite. The tumultuous relationships of early 1900s supermodel Evelyn Nesbitt proved to be deadly when her husband murdered her former lover in what was called the crime of the century. At the beginning of the 20th century, Americans could hardly go anywhere without seeing the face of Evelyn Nesbitt. The beautiful young model's likeness appeared on magazine covers, works of art, and advertisements for toothpaste. And in 1907, she became the star of the trial of the century after her husband murdered one of her former lovers. The trial captivated Americans across the country and revealed the dark underbelly of Nesbitt's seemingly glamorous life. Her story was not one of champagne and parties, but sexual assault, manipulation, and violence. This is how Nevelyn Evelyn Nesbitt became one of the most famous women in America and what happened to her after her illustrious star began to dim. Born on December 25, 1884 in Pennsylvania, Florence Evelyn Nesbitt found fame at a young age. After the death of her father left her family destitute, Nesbitt was able to make money as an artist's model starting around the age of 14. Quote, the work was fairly light, end quote, Nesbitt wrote in her memoirs. The poses were not particularly difficult. In the main, they wanted me for my head. I never posed for the figure in the sense that I had posed for nude. Sometimes I would be painted as a little eastern girl in a costume of a Turkish woman, all vivid coloring with robes and bangles of jade about my neck and arms. In 1900, Nesbitt moved to New York City to pursue modeling further. She was a smash hit, and her likeness proved so popular that she appeared in works of art as one of the original Gibson girls, on the cover of magazines like Vanity Fair and in advertisements for everything from tobacco to face creams. Before long, Nesbitt was able to convert her celebrity into an acting career. She appeared in the chorus line for the Broadway play Floridora and soon snatched up a speaking role in the play The Wild Rose. As an in-demand model and actress, Evelyn Nesbitt was able to comfortably support herself, her mother, and her younger brother, but she soon learned that the glitter and glamour of fame had a dark side. While acting in Floridora, Evelyn Nesbitt met Stanford White a prominent architect whose many famous projects included the second Madison Square Garden, the Tiffany and Company building, and the Washington Square Arch. At first, the 47-year-old White acted as a fatherly figure and benefactor to the 16-year-old model. He showered Nesbitt with money, gifts, and even an apartment. Nesbitt found him clever, kindly, and safe. Quote, he exercised an almost fatherly supervision over what I ate and was particularly solicitous as to what I drank, end quote. Nesbitt later recalled, everybody had spoken so well of him and he was undoubtedly a genius in his art. 
but White's interest in Nesbitt wasn't as innocent as it seemed. As PBS writes, White convinced Nesbitt's mother to visit relatives in Pennsylvania, then pounced on the teenage model in her mother's absence. He invited Nesbitt to a party at his apartment where she was the only guest and plied her with champagne until she passed out. Quote, he gave me champagne, which was bitter and funny tasting, and I didn't care for it much. End quote. Nesbitt later recalled, when I woke up, all of my clothes were pulled off me. For a year afterward, the teenage Nesbitt became the married white's mistress. When she was 17, their relationship ended and Nesbitt enrolled in school in New Jersey. But then an older man fo focused his attention on Evelyn Nesbitt with cataclysmic results. Evelyn Nesbitt was pursued by many men, but one, the wealthy railroad heir, Harry Kendall Thaw, was determined to make her his bride. After wooing her with gifts that ranged from flowers to a piano, Thaw charmed Nesbitt by paying for her and her mother to go with him to Europe after she had had an eptendectomy. There, Thaw proposed to Nesbitt multiple times, apparently undeterred each time she turned him down. Finally, Nesbitt decided to tell him the truth about what had happened between her and White. Quote, he was so dogged and as persistent as ever, end quote, she wrote in her memoirs. There was no fending him off with excuses, with reasons, or with explanation as to why marriage was not desirable. I knew in an instant that now he must know the truth, must take his answer for good or evil. Thaw, who hated White, was outraged, but it didn't impact his desire to marry Nesbitt. Unfortunately for her, Thaw wasn't the kind and generous man that he seemed. Even before their wedding, he began beating her. His eyes were glaring and his hands grasped a rawhide whip. Evelyn Nesbitt later testified about one of Thaw's beatings in Europe. He seized a hold of me, placed his fingers in my mouth, and tried to choke me. He then, without the slightest provocation, inflicted on me several severe blows with the rawhide whip so severely that my skin was cut and bruised. Indeed, the New York Post writes that Thaw had a reputation back in New York for beating sex workers with a whip and that he regularly indulged in heroin and cocaine, yet Nesbitt and Thaw's wedding went forward in 1905. Their marriage, however, would soon lead to murder. After marrying Evelyn Nesbitt, Harry Thaw's obsession with Stanford White only intensified. According to Vice, he'd wake her up in the middle of the night and demand that she recount once again what had happened between them. Suspicious and near mad with jealousy, Thaw also enlisted detectives to follow White's every move. This man Thaw is crazy. He imagines that I have done him some wrong, White told a friend. Thaw is insanely jealous of his wife. He doubtless imagines that I am meeting her, and before God, I am not. My friendship for the girl was taken from a pure fatherly interest. On June 25, 1906, Thaw's fixation on White came to a head. He, White, and Nesbitt all found themselves attending a performance of Mamselle Champion on the roof of the Madison Square Garden, which White has had designed. But as Nesbitt and Thaw got up to the got up to leave, Thaw suddenly circled back. Nesbitt turned around and saw her husband raise his arm and then there was a loud report, a second, a third, Nesbitt later wrote in her memoirs. 
quote, whatever happened had happened in the twinkling of an eye before anyone had a chance to think to act. A macabre sight, brief yet unforgettable, met my gaze. Stanford White slumped slowly in his chair, sagged and slid to the floor, end quote. Thaw shot White three times. The first shot hit the architect in the shoulder, the second under his left eye, and the third went through his mouth. White died instantly and Thaw was arrested. During the subsequent trial of the century, Evelyn Nesbitt became the star witness. She shared lurid details of her relationships with both White and Thaw to such an extent that a church group tried to censor reporting of the trial and stood by her husband. Nesbitt wasn't the only one. Most of America saw Thaw as a hero defending his wife's honor. Though Thaw's first trial in 1907 ended with a hung jury, his second trial in 1908 found him insane and decreed that he be committed to an asylum. He spent the rest of his life in and out of asylums, including an escape attempt, but was indefinitely committed to an insane asylum in 1916. In 1915, he and Nesbitt divorced. So what happened to Evelyn Nesbitt, whose beauty had led to fame, riches, and murder? Following the trial of the century, Evelyn Nesbitt wrote two memoirs, The Story of My Life, 1914, and Prodigal Days, 1934. She significantly amended some details from her testimony, insisting in the second of her memoirs that White's sexual assault never happened and that she'd fallen asleep. <clears throat> this led to speculation that Nesbitt may have been pressured by Thaw's lawyers and his mother to provide justification for White's murder. Either way, Nesbitt, Nesbitt <laughs> was just 16 years old when her relationship with White began. She remained famous after the infamous trial, first as a performer in vaudeville acts and then as a silent film star. Nesbitt's drug addiction, however, ended her acting career and she tried to take her own life in 1926. In the end, Nesbitt lit, left New York and started over in California, where she lived a quiet existence teaching ceramics and helping her son Russell raise his children until her death in 1967 at the age of 82. Looking back at her life, Nesbitt seemed to find value in her family over everything else, the fame and glory, the money and the men. Quote, having successfully raised Russell, she wrote in her 1934 memoir, Prodigal Days, quote, I no longer feel that I have lived in vain, end quote. And that is the story of the crime of the century involving Evelyn Nesbitt. As always, thanks for joining me. Feel free to leave comments or a review and tell me um, how you're enjoying these episodes. Uh, leave a comment to request future episodes but until next time